Hola, Joshua Smizer de Leon here, founder and host of the Basel podcast. Thanks for listening to the show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo, Boricua, and Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on savechicagomedia.org. Okay, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Bienvenidos to the Paseo Podcast. I am your host, Joshua Smizer de Leon, and today we are talking to Puerto Rican author Xochitl Gonzalez. She has a new book out because we're recording this before the book comes out, but when you're listening to this, the book will be out, of course. Um, but she has a new book called Olga Dies Dreaming. The book follows Olga and Brieto, a pair of successful New York siblings with Puerto Rican roots as they navigate a tense reunion with their estranged mother, Blanca, in the days leading up to the devastation of Hurricane Maria. I'm actually reading it right now, but uh, what you should know is that it has gotten some really good positive reviews. Time Magazine just published their list of the 21 most anticipated books of 2022. And what's the first book at the top? Olga Dies Dreaming. So again, by the time you listen or watch this episode, you'll be able to find it on a bookstore shelf, a local bookstore shelf near you. Um, but anyway, all that said, Sochil Gonzalez, welcome to the Paseo podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much, Dasha, for having me. And I'm just so excited to talk about this book from this specific perspective. Um, so this is a lot of fun for me. Great. No, I'm super excited to have you on. Can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, tell us, uh, you know, what's the premise of Olga Dies Dreaming? What should we know? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I'm, a, I'm a 44-year-old writer who lives in Brooklyn. And I actually grew up here my whole life and I was raised by my, um, I'm actually Boricua and Mexicana, but my, I was raised by my mom's family. Um, I was raised by my maternal grandparents and in like in and around Sunset Park, Borough Park, Brooklyn. And, um, and that's definitely a big inspiration for this book. Um, and I came to writing very late in life. I didn't start writing until I was 40. Um, and so prior to that, I had like my eponymous, um, my, my eponymous protagonist, been a wedding planner, which is her career when she when we meet her. Um, and I owned a business for a number of years in consulting. I worked as a fundraiser. And then when I turned 40, I just was like, I really want to, I really want to follow this passion that I've always sort of had. I'd loved books, I loved reading and and I'd always loved writing. I just I never gave myself the space for it. And so I ended up um, actually blowing up my entire life and applying to graduate school. And I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop and I left a lifelong Brooklynite moved to the Iowa City, Iowa <laughs> to get my MFA. Sounds exciting. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was like reverse exciting. Yeah. It was like, you know, it was exciting in a very cerebral kind right. of way. But um, I'd had the idea for this book maybe right. I had the idea the same day that I got into my, my MFA program. And so I spent the months leading up to moving there. So from February of 2019 until August, 
just furiously writing this book as fast as I could, like on weekends and mornings before work. And then I got to Iowa and like, there really wasn't anything else to do. <laughs> so I just was like, like with my imaginary friends in Brooklyn. Um, and so kind of what, what is the book about? You know, uh, the, pre the it's really, I honestly, the inspiration going into it was I wanted to write a, a really compelling story that drew people in that made my own people and community feel recognized, but that also made people give a shit about the fact that we have a colony. And I, I originally, originally my intention was I wanted to write about, I just had felt that I had it. I'd had this experience of kind of growing up in Brooklyn, very blue collar family. Like my grandmother was a lunch lady. My grandfather was a janitor at the school in Sunset Park. And, um, and, and then I ended up getting thrust into like, an Ivy League college and it in the mid nineties. And it was like literally one of the most traumatizing things of my entire life that led, rendered me and many other people that I knew there, Latino people that I knew there very confused. Like, it's like you sort of come out and you're like, I don't know what I'm, what is success now? What is it, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, what is ambition? And I just had not seen characters that kind of reflected that, um, that trajectory and that sort of like searching for how do we reconcile the values with which we were raised with the kind of culture of um, like elite American success in a capitalistic society. So, like, you know, like at, at, its, at its most theoretical level. And so I started thinking about my own kind of biography, which is that my, my parents met in the Brown Power Movement. Um, they actually were very involved in the Socialist Worker Party. Um, my, my mom was, uh, you know, fought for Black and Puerto Rican Studies Department at CUNY and like literally was one of the first employees of the Brooklyn College Black and Puerto Rican Studies Department. And, um, and, and then I, they were both still very active in politics. And so I was left to be raised by my mom's parents. And I was like, they'd send me like marks for beginners, like an illustrated book. Like, you know, like I was like, like, I was very much like raised with that. And then I somehow found myself as an adult working pretty successfully as like a luxury wedding planner to the ultra wealthy of Manhattan. And I just sometimes would wake up and be like, how do we get here? Um, and when push came to shove, I sort of thought about I was like, I'm gonna, I want this female protagonist. I want her to sort of have caught, come through this trajectory because I want people to see that that's a real person. That's a real like human experience. Um, and and I was like, you know what? What if you've never gone to therapy? And this became the starting point from which I was like, what would 10 years of really bad coping mechanisms? And, and you know, and I think my family, there are a lot of, I think there's a lot of Latino families like this, a lot of Boricua families like this where, we don't always talk about our problems. Like, it's like, it's very like, it's not, it's like, just put, you know, keep, keep going balance, and don't worry about it. And let's not call attention to our dirty laundry. And it's like, you know, we're, we're really um, just, just buck up and, and move on. And, and yet there's a lot of families with trauma. And so I, you know, I had to deal with my own traumas that I'd never dealt with. And I started therapy when I was 30. And I started writing this book when I was like 41. And I was like, what if you not had 11 years of therapy? And I just kind of kept some biographical structure there, because I was familiar with what that what coping mechanism that could result in, and then sort of wanted to look at that. And then I gave her a brother because I was an only child. <laughs> and I I'm also fascinated just generally, um, and I haven't done a good job of synopsizing this book, but I-, I No, I, you're going, I, go for it. I, no, I love it. I gave, so we meet Olga 
and she's 40 and she's a wedding planner. Um, and she was left by her mother when she was 13. And her father um, was also a young Lord. Uh, her parents met in the young Lord's party. And by the time the nineties come, he has sort of relapsed into an addiction that he had as a younger man and eventually dies of HIV. It's the, it's, it, it takes the, the, the sort of her youth is puts her in the early nineties, you know, when these things are happening to her. And I, I gave her an older brother because I also was so, I wanted her to not go through the experience alone. And I also was intrigued by how we have different relationships to our parents and our culture with just a few extra years. Um, and so when she, he, her parent, mother leaves them when she, she's 13 and he's 16, almost 17, and um, how this sort of informs the way that they each grow up and their relationship with each other and their relationship to their community and their identity, and also their thoughts about their own mother and father. And so he grows up to be a congressman that represents uh, what would be Nidia Velasquez's district. <laughs> Nidia's district. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. <laughs> I, ho I hope you send Nidia a copy of this. <laughs> I know, I need to, I need to actually, I need to. Yeah. And um, and then I actually, a reporter for the Washington Post just didn't, I didn't know I followed her and was like, this is giving me cringes. It's so accurate to DC. Like it was, <laughs> but I, um, I made him a congressman and he is a person that's very compromised. Like we, on the surface, he has the best intentions and in his heart, he has the best intentions, but he was never given the space to fully be himself and, and deal with a lot of like this baggage that he has. And he was raised to be a caretaker for the family and to be the strong kind of man of the house, even at such a young age. And his sister is honestly a little bit of a mess. Like she's very successful on paper. She's like, we meet her, she's having an affair with the father of one of her old clients. She's like stealing from, she's stealing from her clients. It's like this weird way of like morally correcting things. And what we come to find out is that though their mother has been absent for 27 years when we start the book, she's communicated with them one-sidedly through letters all of these years where she um, has like her friends that kind of keep an eye out on them and keep her posted on what they're doing. And she sort of looms large with, um, mothering from a deep, deep distance. Um, but Blanca left because she had, you know, after the young Lord, she sort of was bored with domestic life and wanted to um, do something that she felt was more important in the world. And that was very much taken from my own experience with my parents. And what we come to find out is she's become much more radicalized. And eventually we discover that she's actually returned um, to Puerto Rico, and that is um, where we meet her. And it takes place in the months before and after Hurricane Maria. Um, and I just, you know, the, I, I wanted to create compelling characters because I think it's so easy right now to, and there's a love story in there. And there's some, you know, there's some, there's a lot of great family stuff and, and strength of character, but really I wanted to sort of create a piece of art that illustrates the fact that these are not abstract news stories. Like these are things that are happening that, uh, you know, gentrification in Brooklyn, uh, you know, obviously disaster capitalism on the islands, like gentrification on the islands. Like these are things that are really promesa. Like these are things that are actually impacting people's lives and families. And so um, it was very, I don't know, it was very important to me. And, um, and I felt, I felt a real urgency about it. It's really also a love letter to Brooklyn because um, one of the things that, and I don't know how it is going in Chicago and you you can tell me, but like yeah. one of the things that's happening 
in New York that's sort of heartbreaking to see is that there was a whole community and sort of new, new York and culture. It's like it's its own thing that was such a strong arm of the diaspora that gentrification has just decimated because people have been pushed out of these enclaves that had been like these New Rican enclaves like Sunset Park used to be. We're seeing it happen. I'm a, a board member of the Lower East Side Girls Club. We're seeing it happen on the Lower East Side. Like we're seeing it already happens. In East Tar it's happening so rapidly in East Harlem. Like, and so, um, you know, like what does that do when there's a second diasporic wave caused by like, by economic like greed, you know? And so it sort of touches on a lot of that stuff, but at the same time can sometimes be pretty funny. So, um, and really it's a story about family, about love of all kinds, like family love, romantic love, self-love, I think most of all, and love of, and love of, of, of culture and love of place. Well, I definitely want to talk to you more about, you know, how you play around with this backdrop of gentrification, you know, the class dynamics, you know, I do want to delve a bit deeper there, but to go back a little bit to kind of give you some context on what we experience here in Chicago very similar to what New York yeah. has experienced. So it, it's interesting to see how you 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 touch on it in this piece cuz talk about, you know, New York being the mecca of uh the Puerto Rican diaspora even though Florida may be giving y'all a run for your money. I think so, Brooklyn yeah. Brooklyn is like the mecca for gentrification. I mean, it has oh, been my God. for for a while now. Um, it, it it's pain it's actually yeah. painful. It's yeah. like painful having yeah. grown up here and um and just, you know, what I, it means to me and to my friends that I grew up with, it's like, it does, people don't even know that that is what, what it was because right. it's not even like it's being, it's being inhabited or co-opted, I should mm -hmm. say, by people that weren't even a part of that culture of hip hop yeah. culture. Like they, yeah. it's like, like it just literally is completely over their, yeah. over their heads. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I don't know, I think, you know, it's funny like to talk about identity, like, you know, in in the book, Prieto is very comfortable in his like uh in his Puerto Ricanness, like in his identity. And he like, you know, and um he very much that's part of his like persona as a politician. This is very much who he is. And his sister, um, you know, she's she's at one point her mother tells her you're light skinned and you talk in a way that doesn't upset white people, like mm -hmm. white people's ears. And you know, and she gets sent, yeah, and she gets sent to uh, or she chooses to send herself to um, you know, she goes to a, a fancy New England college, which I in the in the adaptation, I just call it brown. But in the book I was like, let me let it be any place. And it's really a funny Rorschach test because people are like, is this Dartmouth? Is this blah, blah, blah. like whatever school they went to, they think that that's the school. Um, but you know, I, I think, and that almost makes her more confused than ever about who she is in some funny way. And what, what a lot of her plight is the one thing that she feels completely unlike deniably is part of Brooklyn, except that it's like almost like the ground is being swept out from under her. So it's like she feels fully one identity that is starting to cease to exist. And mm -hmm. I think that that sense of like extinction is um, is like personal is truly painful for her. Um, and it's something that ironically ends up being the connecting point between her and her romantic interest, her real romantic interest in this that sort of opens up a lot of other thought processes for her. So mm -hmm. I, I think what was good is that you can read stories about you can read a million news articles about this place going you know like oh they're knocking down these homes you can you can read about losuras now being all luxury condos like you can read all that but like it's it's what's beautiful about 
the novel as a form is that it gives you the space to like explain the personal pain of like seeing, you know, businesses go under. And I think of seeing opportunities, which is almost more painful sometimes seeing opportunities that were denied a community suddenly come to, to white people that have the money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, there's this point where they, they had, uh, they wouldn't allow bars. Like the, her neighborhood wasn't zoned for bars, you know. And then all of a sudden, it it opens up. Like they make a change, and she's like, "But why aren't any?" And it's, you know, in real life, it's a very Latino and Asian American. She's like, "Why?" It's actually China. It's one of the largest Chinatowns in New York, other than Chinatown, Chinatown in Manhattan. But like, she's like, "Why aren't there any Chinese people opening bars? Why aren't there any Puerto Ricans opening bars? Why?" <laughs> like, you know, it's like asking the right then, questions. You no, know, and we're yeah. seeing, it, but and we're seeing it now with weed yeah. legalization. Like, it's like, you know, like, it's like, yes. yes, we want to put, give an advantage to black and Latino communities, except that the barrier to entry from a cost perspective is like outrageous. So oh, it's, yeah. you know, it's like things change, the same things that, that sort of tied us up change. And then we can't, there, there's new, they say they open a door, then there's a new obstacle that a new hoop to jump over. And I think, or to jump through. And I, I don't know, I think I wanted to create a character that could verbalize those thoughts that people don't really want to, well, I don't want to say people don't want to hear. It's that they're not, I'm not talking about gentrification with somebody who just moved here. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, like I'm not interested in explaining to you what you did. <laughs> I know, I just, you know, like, although I did have one person on a podcast ask me, how can you be a good person that moves to a new place that's gentrifying? And I thought that was, and I was like, well, no people. Cause what we're losing is this idea that I think is culturally like part of us, this idea of talking to your neighbors, of knowing each, of knowing the neighborhood, of knowing, you know, like of knowing one another, and and we sometimes just the gossip, and sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like and, no, but to take care of each other, and I think um, yeah. this this wanting to take care of each other, I do feel is something that culturally is a part that is something that is handed down from you know from one generation to the next and i think you're it's being replaced with people that want to be strangers they want to live in high rises and not know their neighbors and not talk to anybody when they go and get coffee and i you know i just think um i think i wanted to just sort of get get into the inner space of what that experience is like to to feel that to feel yourself pushed out you know no i i agree um and i i think um you know, when we talk about gentrification, those questions are always tough. Um, I think it's it's absolutely layered. You know, you want it, you at one end, uh, absolutely, it's that community aspect. It's getting invested in the community, getting active, so that you're looking out for the many and not just your own self. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's uh, policy that affects uh, who dictates what the value of property is worth in a given neighborhood. Like yeah. Why is a place like Lincoln Park, why is property valued so high there? And a community like I live in Hermosa isn't. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, so when you think about the ripple effects of that, I mean, small example, I mean, we could talk about a whole episode on gentrification, but um, you know, I know, I know. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, no, it's like we can like really go off the rails here. I mean, in a good way, but um, you know, but you look at the ripple effects of even something like property. I mean, if you have a working class, Latino household and, um, you know, one of the only ways you can pass on uh, wealth yes. is through your property. Well, right. if someone can just say, well, your neighborhood isn't worth squat now That's and that right. drops your property value, you might end up being underwater. You might end up not really yep. having much to give to your 
your yep. your uh, your children. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, oh yeah, Lincoln Park, your property is worth a million dollars. I mean, talk about keeping wealth I, in inside one type of demographic. I mean, yes. gentrification is a way to, but that's just one ripple effect. I mean, but I think what happens though also is Please. that, and what I really wanted to, I wanted to bake it into the cake of these characters is that, and this is something, I, sometimes I pull things from my life and I didn't even realize I pulled them from my life. Like. Mm-hmm. My grandparents bought that the house that I lived in. It was a three-family house with my grandmother's sisters. Okay, like, and so it was only family that inhabited this house. You know what I mean? Like, and and everybody in my family lived in a house like that. But they were able to buy a house at a time where people with very blue-collar jobs could could save and buy a house. But at the same time, when they were retiring, and somebody came and offered them a windfall. Like you're working class people now ready to retire. It's very hard to say no when somebody comes and is like, oh, like th- now you can get old and, and some with relatively worry free. Like, and I think that that's what has happened. It's not that we, in, in some cases, there are neighborhoods like Sunset Park, there were eventually a decent, a large number of, of Puerto Rican homeowners and Latino homeowners, but a lot of people it's like the economy, the nature of New York just changed. And it's like, well, then what do I do? Like, and so you saw a lot of people sell because it was their one chance to get some, the homeownership was something, but it wasn't the same level of security because there wasn't, it's not the kind of jobs as the cost of just living. I think at one point, it's so funny, by the way, I laughed so hard about this. I was like, there's a point where he runs into a woman that lives in the neighborhood and she's complaining about a mango being $3. Yes. And then I read my friend's book, which is coming out. My friend Clavis Natero, who's a Dominican writer, and she she wrote a book about a different take on gentrification. And in her book, somebody complains about a three dollar mango, and I was like, mangoes must really be three dollars because well, how do we both come yeah. up with this? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, hey, you you you're onto something there. And we've had we've had uh, previous we've had conversations like this with with previous guests talking about the racism of produce, how we can grow up. Uh, eating aguacates and pana and you know and a lot of this produce that is is native to our cuisine and yet um it can be valued at such a low amount when it's not on the radar of Uh the most affluent i will say our white brothers and sisters anybody that may be watching or or listening to this y'all are the reason that avocados cost so much now avocados i know you know I somebody know. likes it on some toast and then to get again just gets to dictate an arbitrary cost for that next thing you know something that has been in our cuisine for generations right. is now so, affecting our ability to eat healthily it's so it's so true and so um i don't know food we were we were chatting a little bit before we started recording mm-hmm. i think food politics is so interesting because like you know i'm seeing on La Isla, like so many people that are going vegetarian because it's a way of sort of like protesting in some ways the Jones Act and the dis- difficulty getting produce and and supporting local farming. Talk a little bit about how you explore class dynamics. Now you talked about Olga, you know, having success, Prieto, yeah. her brother having success, um, yeah. and then the 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 um, looking at where they are in their life versus where their mother is in their life. I mean those. And not saying those are the only class dynamics you explore, but you know those are pretty big contrasts. Yeah, um, well, so I think how do you do both that? Both of their occupations, I, I, their occupations were really good and important to me. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I it, originally I didn't really want to make her a wedding planner because I wanted to just do something else. But I a know that people find that kind of interesting, and b when I started thinking about it, I was like, 
what a great, because I often thought about class, what a great way to talk about class because you are, on the one hand, it's a weird profession because you have to be both like aesthetically pleasing and have good taste, quote unquote, good taste. And you also have to be able to sell yourself to people that that are well educated and have lots and lots of disposable income. And yet at the same time, at the end of the day, you still service them, right? Like you're still, uh, you're still in the service industry and uh, it's just the, at, the, at a very high level, but you are not really there as a peer. And I think I really wanted to be able to show, I don't know, I see it now, like yeah, I'm seeing it even with COVID. Like I, I, my friends of more middle income means more, you know, that more middle income and lower and, and working class means somebody has COVID. Well, I guess we're all going to get COVID. Like, you know, it's like this, like, like yeah. literally, like I got, it was like, well, I guess I'm going to get COVID now. Like, you know, I, and I, and then I have friends and old work colleagues that have tons of money. And it's like, oh, well, I'm just gonna go and isolate at our country house. <laughs> like, yep. You know, I, I I say that to say that like, but there's this panic. It's not even like, it's like in the prior to that, it's like, oh my God, what if I get COVID? And it's like, you know, I think that it's an interesting thing to just see the approach that people take. Like, it's like, well, I guess if one of us gets COVID, we're all gonna get COVID. Whereas it's like, I can't possibly get COVID. And even though you actually probably have the easiest way to do it, like it's mm -hmm. so I think like, I wanted to give up like some space to talk about how it's not just about purchasing power or about like privilege. Like I think at one point her assistant is somebody like Olga's assistant is somebody that she's forced to hire by an old client right and so she kind of she's really a good assistant but Olga resents it because she's like oh my god like I have to like I am I'm annoyed mm. that you're here because I like she basically threatened to take all of her job like my work away like so mm. you know I um I think that there's tiny power dynamics that exist beyond just having the ability to spend a lot of money on a wedding and then with Prieto I think even though he is not a person that's driven by capitalism, like he's very much a public servant. And in that sense, he's a pure public servant. The power that donors and capitalism have over him, I think is important. And so I, I felt like those were two ways in which I would be able to very organically talk about and show not only class dynamics, but also the the thought processes and privileges that come with those dynamics. You know, and mm. like and sometimes I have a lot of fun with it, like maybe too much fun with it. Like but like like she goes to like a, a Mexican a high-end Mexican restaurant owned by like a white guy who'd gone to like all these private schools and like he like was like yes. tripping and like has you transported me. <laughs> you transported me to so many experiences. You know how many times I've walked into like a, a Mexican restaurant or just like just to like it, so, uh, Latin American, Central American, Caribbean, and I'm like, I wonder who the owners are. Exactly. I just wonder. Oh like, this place just gives me a vibe. Anyway, sorry, oh. I was just no, an aside, no, no. but very relatable I, part of the book. And I just think, like, what I tried to do yeah. was show where power lies, and I wanted to create mm -hmm. two characters that have agency. You know, like, I mean, they're both good at what they do, and I think it's like, yeah. but even within the context of that, it's it's important to see where they sit in the in the larger scheme of power, you know, and I, and I, I had had when I was workshopping it, you know, the book alternates POVs. So we hear from Olga's mom in her letters. And then we hear from we hear from Olga, and we hear from Prieto. And then we also hear from Olga has this white lover when we first meet, and they eventually break up, but we keep hearing from him. And when I was workshopping it, 
you know, I mean, if we really wanted to drill into it, like, honestly, like every character sort of has a corollary in terms of a political belief and where they sit in the larger relationship of Puerto Rico in the United States. But, but I, you know, I, I remember when I was workshopping it and people were like, I don't understand why the white guy needs a point of view. And I was like, because Puerto Rico right now can't exist without the white guy's point of view. And so we therefore need to hear it. Like, and I, and I, whether it, whether we find it relevant or not, it inserts itself. And there's, a casual power that he has that he exerts in the course of the novel that, you know, is intentionally meant to mirror the sort of laissez-faire, like, like nonchalance with which the United States exerts power over Puerto Rico. So I, you know, I think, um, I try to think about it on a symbolic level as well. I mean, a lot of people aren't going to get, a lot of people will be like, it was a really fun love story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, sure, love sure. Story. But I think that for the reader that's interested in diving in and, and into the politics of it, I did very much um, think about those underpinnings um, quite a bit. And I am, um, and it was, you know, it's funny when at some point we'll get to your, your question about what does being Puerto Rican mean? I, I, I will actually say, well, it was so important to me to write this book. And I, I I'm sure I'm going to have like 17 emails from like people that are like, why didn't you write more than 17? when are you going to write about a book about Mexicans? Like, and I'm like, and maybe mm -hmm, and at some mm -hmm, point yeah. I will, but I think like, Oh, it'll I, come. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, yeah. not, you know, like absolutely a hundred percent. And I already had somebody like in a very sweet way, but they're like, what's a girl with this Aztec name doing writing about Boricuas? Like, and I was like, it's a, you yeah. know, like, and, I mean, I, I thought um, the same thing too. I and mean, when I saw it originally, I was like, what's the, oh, I see an X there. Oh, that doesn't look Puerto Rican. But then to think that well, someone's going to be like, what is a name? Number one, number two, you're you're Mexican and Puerto Rican, and that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I, and I had a and I had a, an older Boricua writer tell me that I should change the character and have her also be half Mexican and half Boricua. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that because I really I I just wanted it to be. I want. I knew what I wanted this family to be. Now, right. and I say it's not this, a biography of your life. It's not a biography. You know? Yeah, it's, right. No, it's right. Like, it's not a biography. It's fiction. <laughs> right. It's fiction. Right. I think the but the other part of the part about it is that like though I always knew this was going to be what the book was about, like, because the idea came out decently whole. Like I was like, like you know, I'm, I'm so always, I'm always sort of surprised that it, like the, the mm. germ of what it was, was is pretty close to what it ended up being. That said, my complete idea of what that means to me, what my identity means to me changed and was so enriched in the process of writing the book. Um, and I, I don't know. It's so fascinating. Like I, I've been fascinated by that because I wanted things to be pretty accurate. So I did a lot of research, like, um, and and the amount of, I don't even want to just say pride, but but the amount of like consistency of um, of character of our people throughout generations that I then started to see and really like immersing myself in history that we were never fucking taught never taught like yep. i maybe never, had two pages in a textbook in school never yeah. taught i'm like horrified when i think like it's like like yeah. horrified and i and i i think i am i was so um hurt and saddened when this started to kind of come together for me because i was like how many people were told you know, and in the very beginning of the book, it, she talks about the very beginning, like she talks about her Tio Jojo being dyslexic 
and how they didn't discover it until he was a, like a grandfather and one of his grandchildren was, you know, that, and I was like, and that was very much from like stories that my family would be like, oh, you know, very nonchalant. It was like, oh, oh, you know, they put me in special ed. And it was like, what's like, it's like, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, what's yep. like, and I, I, the idea that we were told and dismissed and then not told about all of our strengths and not like, and that we were like literally being pillaged uh, culturally and like shoved to the margins and never not knowing our own strength and history like it's just um it is a way in which people it's a psychological warfare in some weird way like it's like it's very it's like a way that you diminish people's self-esteem and I am um, and I I remember going to the African-American History Museum at the Smithsonian in DC and like walking out enraged enraged because I was like we were literally missed educated to believe a myth and um (laughs) and i think that i came into this the process of conceiving this book and then beginning to write it um yeah you mentioned having a a, um olga's boyfriend as a white man his point of view because yeah i mean the island kind of goes unfortunately as the white man goes i mean we promessa uh colonialization um and i think a lot of there's a lot of white people, especially white liberals, that will push for something like Puerto Rico statehood without yeah. understanding the layered uh, history, the context that comes with that type of statement. Yeah. Uh, because to them, it's a natural flow of things. Yeah. Um, but to many Puerto Ricans, it's like, okay, so we're asking the, uh, in, in our minds, the oppressor to yeah. give us permission to live. Um, yep. And when in the first place, we were already getting rid of one repressor that was giving us our in the Spanish that were giving us our pathway to our own independence. And the, under the guise of, quote unquote, saving a group of people, the United States swept in um, and claimed Puerto Rico for its own. So we're looking at the now present day world largest colony. Puerto Rico's had to deal with uh, naval tests on Vieques and Culebra, yep. uh, eugenics, yep. like you mentioned before, the sterilization of our women, uh, the Jones Act, shoot, even La Ley de la Mordaza, where our yep. bandera was illegal, yep. to present day being the, the financial crisis, Promesa, Hurricane Maria, all types of climate um, challenges. Um, and you, it's easy to look back as somebody, I would hope, as somebody that might have been pro-statehood, pro-commonwealth, to think, maybe I should readjust or reconfigure how I look at something that like Puerto Rico status and what that relationship looks like between the island and the U.S. Because with the way things are going now, what what uh, supporting points does someone that's pro-commonwealth or pro-statehood really have? Because I don't I don't know what the future of the island is when you look at things like exports and imports, when you have our entire industries like sugarcane, coffee yeah. that was drank in the Vatican by the Queen of England. Those industries, now that we're seeing a little bit of resurgence on the island, be, to your point of people using that as a form of protest and investing internally, um, but the island has been stripped for parts and it continues yeah. to be stripped for parts in the way we have laws that are basically um, attracting the rich and wealthy from the United States to avoid paying taxes in exchange yeah. for not really hiring and investing in the Puerto Rican That's community. exactly right. So all this to say, uh, the we're list goes on. Paradise. And on. Yeah, you yeah, know, we're gifting paradise. Gifting yeah. away paradise. So and I, yeah. I, I, I truly dread 
uh, so chill, you know, the, the day when I look at Puerto Rico and the majority of people living there are not Puerto Rican, um, where the I, Puerto Ricans become the minority in Puerto Rico, which is mind boggling to think, but the way we're trending, but it can that be is, a very real reality. I mean, I, I can't wait for you to finish the book because it gets into all of that. And I think what we have to call it is what it is, which is it's basically a, it's a very, uh, it's a very hands-off version of genocide uh, because what is it truly like, I mean, it's, it's starving, it's starving the people of their, of their home um, and smoking them out, you know, in a, in a, in a way. And I think that that is what we saw. I mean, I, I probably, it's weird. I don't, it's not a cynical book overall, but certainly the take of what has been happening post Maria is very cynical. Um, but I think accurate, sadly, like where it is, it is not, I don't believe it's just coincidental, like convergence of incidents. Like, I think it is very systemic. And I think that um, the goal is to gift this, to make this a paradise for the, for wel the wealthy. And unfortunately, given the way that our political system works, the same people that are migrating to the island are the same people who are major donors to all of these, like, uh, you know, it's like, like it's not it's not unfortunately like having nothing to do with one another it actually all converges and um and i i get into all of that with the book and and i and i was it's very you know character driven but i get into it and i think um you know it's interesting you go on if you look at some of these um when i was working on the tv adaptation it was it was funny it like opened up a whole oh, yeah. other we layer should, of stuff we, we should mention though so chill we didn't say this explicitly but you, you referenced the adaptation hulu is oh, very yeah. interested in the novel. Um, so we and, we delivered the pilot, and yeah. we're waiting now, like light the velas, because it's going to be beautiful. But we um we're waiting for the the order, hopefully an order for us to go to series, and we shoot um seven more episodes for this season. Um, and they want their their dream is for it to be a multi season show that would go. There's a time jump in the book at the very end that goes about uh, eight years, so mm -hmm. it would the first season would cover most of the book and then it would time jump. But, um, but when we were shooting the, the pilot and, and working on the pilot and we actually then had characters, actors playing characters. And I was saying Chicago's own Melissa Dupree is in this and like, you know, like, and she plays Sarita who's barely a character on the page in the book, but then is like a very big character in the show, which is sort of fun. But um, I say all this to say that uh, Ramon Rodriguez who plays Prieto um, and I were like, he's like, I, we need to beef up his real feelings about statehood, you know, because like it's sort of you get to do it in passing. And so he and I both went on this like research mission of like, what are these pro statehood like arguments? And one of them is like absolutely hilarious. Like it's like we couldn't have our own Miss Universe contestant. Like, because oh, that's geez. what everybody, that's like what everybody gosh. cares about. It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah, is like, that is so true there are like, definitely people out there that so, make that argument anyway it's really like really crazy <laughs> oh, crazy yeah. arguments but you know anyway yeah. i just like i i think it's i i, I think that we um i well, i don't know and the, the problem with what's happening also on the island is that this system that we have these cleavy sites like are so corrupt and as the island becomes more and more non-boricua suddenly they get more and more validated i don't know like so i i it's a we're at a critical point but i also think if you think about it i i don't 
I don't know. I, I'd love to think that our that the summer of George Floyd protests would have happened on their own. But I also think the, people were astounded and amazed by the summer of 2019 in Puerto Rico. Amazed. Yes. Um, and it was on the front page of every major newspaper. And the idea that people could be that disgusted and that fed up. And I, I, I do believe that that inspired the mainland United States beyond an issue about Puerto Rico, like just, a, just to, I can't, we can't sit still yeah. and that we have voices. And so I, um, I really, yeah, I think yeah. that that was an important moment in, a, I think that was a moment where Puerto Rico led for America, honestly, like yeah. in terms of like, what do you people? Cause I remember seeing it. It wasn't like the, the mainland wasn't fucked up at the time and being like, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> I was like, like, what is every atrocity that you can imagine going on right now? And like, what are we doing? Like, and so I really think that was, um, I, I think that we are at a, an interesting, an intriguing point. I agree with that. And, and you mentioned the 2019 protest to oust then Governor Ricardo Rosselló. Um, when we've done episodes on that, but I tell you, um, yeah. we, we recently actually did a, an interview. Um, and one of our guests was Gwena Viles, uh, who's uh, a, a senior reporter for Insider. Um, and uh, another researcher, he's a student at MIT, Francisco Proskauer. Um, and we were talking about the conversations they've had with young Puerto Ricans and analyzing some of the public data, which there is not nearly enough of to, to analyze how Puerto Ricans view uh, Puerto Rico status, affiliation to political parties, you know, so we kind of tried to take as deep of a dive as we could there. And one of the things that were pointed to were um, a lot of the things that we've discussed already, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a bubbling point. Um, and you look at something like 2019, talk about a master class in democracy. You got three, yeah. three million Boricuas on an island and you have a yeah. third of them that could, yeah. and that's just the people that could make it to the capital. That's just the people that could make it. That's right. And then you have throughout the that's diaspora right. protests. We had a, yeah. a, a London, a London Rican that's right. on the yeah. show talking about how, hey, we don't even have a yeah. spot to eat Puerto Rican food here, but we found <laughs> enough of us to protest and they did. And they're, they're, yeah. they're, you can, and anybody listening, you can look this up, listen to the episode. Um, but it, it really inspired a lot of people. And Gwen actually had written an article that talked about her discussions with young Puerto Ricans pointing to the financial crisis, Hurricane Maria yeah. as being those key points. Now, I'm not saying that hit the switch for everybody. But it hit the switch for enough people to add to the ranks of people calling for a readjustment and a realignment and how we view that relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. And I think yes. that's, a, that's trending in the right direction. I think it is trending in the right direction. Been so no, passive I think for so long. We've you know? been very passive. I think yeah. it is trending in the right direction. But I also think, you know, and hopefully one day you have Yadimar uh, on from Centro, but she... Yeah is a sociologist and she's currently studying. We had a great conversation about this. Uh, she's currently studying what are the driving forces for people that want to either stay a territory or become a state. And it's all fear-based. Yeah. And I think oh, yeah. that what we need to be thinking about, and I and I hope that, I don't know, I, I, I really want to find the Boricua economist that can calculate what reparations the island would be owed for all of the years of tariffs and taxes and use land usage, because it, the, the pathway I think to an independent Puerto Rico is not just a break. It's how is there fiscal stability that's owed 
like there's a debt that is owed and um and I think that that has to be has to become part of the conversation and I I don't think that we can talk about atrocities that have happened without looking at the like economic hobbling and I mean just the hobbling of there would be no modern feminist movement without Puerto Rican women because birth control was tested on Puerto Rican women yeah. like and so quite literally there is so much debt owed to the people of the island that I I think it needs to go. The conversation needs to not just be, should this happen, but it should be, it should happen. And how, how is it? And what is the, and what is the, the the debt that is owed? Because I don't think it's, it's without, and I think that the economic insecurity, what Yadima told me, she's like, it's fear. It's fear of the unrest and the, and the, the, the the lack of security. And like, and I think, you know, and that's a, that is actually like a, on the one hand, it's a legitimate fear. If you look at the history of Jamaica and when they, their early years of independence, like just as a contemporary, you know, like sort mm-hmm. of like within a slightly analogous situation, you know, there was years and years of gang violence and lack of infrastructure. And and, and now it's like you go 10 years ago for today, if you spend the time in Jamaica, you're, you're seeing the changes. There's still corruption and blah, blah, blah. But like, I, I think that's government, right? Like, but you see it did take a little bit of time and yet, it is possible. And so I, I think, and that is without what I feel, the ex, I think that there's an economic debt owed for the exploitation, the loss of life, the, the you know, just the, the actual like crippling of, 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 the, of society, of a culture. So I, I don't know, I think that the, that the conversation almost needs to be expanded to what is owed because um, this one-way street is just not... <laughs> Yeah. It's 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 it can't. I don't think people are going to stand for it any much longer. Really. No, no, totally. Uh, yeah, I think uh, with things like the internet, you know, connecting people. There's some people I don't think probably should be connected through the internet, <laughs> but um, you know, it's connected a lot of people um, in a way that's allowed us to share knowledge, uh, debate. Not always do those debates happen in good faith or with all the proper yeah. facts, but I think it allows us to almost have an a la carte in a good way. Uh, way of uh, educating ourselves. Like if someone yeah. was motivated enough to take the deep dive on a topic, they could do that. Um, where yeah. I think in the past, our Puerto Rican ancestors, you know, you're kind of at the behest of what the U.S. media tells you, uh, what true. a corporate-owned media, um, I that's owns, right. you know, uh, that narrative on the island, um, politicians that may be in the pocket of uh, people with financial interests. <sighs> Here in the U.S., you know, the list goes on and on yep, and on. It goes on and um, on and on. And, and we have we have more examples now. You know, we're talking about things like, um, you know, the the massacre in Oklahoma in the early 1900s. Yep. We look at something uh, like our friends, our brothers, sisters, friends in, in Haiti and how, you know, that slave revolution became the first independent yep. nation of, of black people, of Africans that uh, ended up turning into a concerted effort by the world to essentially isolate them to the point where they could not be set up for success or recognized as their own um, yes. country. Um, so yeah, I mean, if Barbados, to use a recent example, if Barbados can get independence from the British, I don't yeah. know why Puerto Rico can't. So yeah. to lean into this fair, fear narrative, I, I think I you're absolutely right. I think that's a very scary part for people. Now, I'm not saying Puerto, uh, in Puerto, Rica, Puerto Rico's independence is the only pathway forward that's I'm just right. saying, let's take fear out of the discussion and talk about what this looks like in practicality. We, yes, we lean into that right. emotion and, and we lean into the heart as opposed to leading with our head. 
And I think that's where we get into these really bad debates over Puerto Rico's status without really putting everything on the table in good faith. So anyway, that was my TED talk. I think, no, no, no. (laughs) And I think I would also just say some of it is you can't, it's sort of the same thing that we were talking about, about family shame and secrets. It's like, if we don't call a thing a thing, we can't correct it. And I think that Mm -hmm. for too long, we've allowed uh, America and Americans to go around thinking that they don't have a colony. And I think that we have to scream it from the rooftops and the idea, you know, and I think I see it as no matter what, what the resolution is, what I know can exist, how can we talk about social justice and voting rights and not have Puerto Rico be part of that conversation? Right. Like we, we, we can't, we should be talking about when we talk about instating voting rights to, you know, formerly incarcerated individuals in the United States if that how do we have that conversation but we have to also have this other conversation because i think we this idea that there's conditional versions of citizenship is the fundamental flaw it's the it's the equal crime of the, all of these problems and i think that we um i think that we one of the things that we, that i i am hoping is that this book sparks some conversation about the fact that we are people that have a colony and you know that we have people that do not have equal rights that are theoretically citizens the same as the rest of us but not so i think that that is something that i hope um i do think you know i think and I, one of the reasons why i do hope and why i wanted to do the adaptation was because i i do think that art can i you know i think yes people are talking about oklahoma and that they're definitely talking about it more because of the success of um the hbo adaptation for um watchmen you know like that put that much more in the public consciousness like it got like suddenly like there were stories about it in the washington post in the new york times like you know like it it, in the la times like it was it was like this forgotten bit of history that pop culture put back and so for me the goal of adapting the book for television was less about you know, creating a career for myself in film and television than it was about like the, the opportunity that this has. And that was what the people at Hulu thought as well. And they, you know, and they said very clearly, and that was why that was such a great partnership. They're like, we want to do for the injustices of Puerto Rico what The Handmaid's Tale has done for women's reproductive rights in terms of putting that in the center of conversation. So they are very committed to the, the politics of this book. And I've been very proud to be partnering with them for that reason. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, paseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show. Are you allowed to say who, I know one person, at least one actor has been tied to it already and that's been made public, but can you say a little bit of a who the cast people. is going to be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if people have read the book, then it'll mean more. So Aubrey Plaza is Olga. Um, this is actually, Love that other, than when she was, other than when she was in Parks and Rec, this is like the first time she'll be playing a Latina in a big way. Um, in a very, and it's a very, you know, and she's fucking amazing in this yeah. part. Oh my God, she's amazing. Um, uh, Ramon Rodriguez, who a lot of people might know from The Wire and The Affair, he's playing Prieto, um, and he is in real life just such a tireless advocate for uh, for Puerto Rico, for Maria, like, you know, sort of like reparations of sorts for Maria, like he's just so, he's amazing, he's just amazing. And then um, Wanda de Jesus is playing Blanca, the mom, um, 
uh, Laz Alonzo is playing Reggie King. Um, Dermot, oh, Jesse, <laughs> Je um, I can't believe that I didn't lead with this, not lead with this, but uh, Mateo is Jesse Williams, who is just fantastic and so fun and awesome in that part. Um, and yeah, I mean, oh, and of course, how can I stop without Jessica B. Mandala is playing Mabel, who is like one of the best characters like I can think of, like, and just it's been such a fun, and that's been a joy because um, we've become friends. We're both from Brooklyn. We're both from South Brooklyn. Like, it's just like we like are at the same age and it was like we just had this experience sort of put us finally in the same space and it's just been beautiful. And you know, and Melissa Duplice plays uh, Duplice plays Sarita, and which is a tiny part in the book, but it's a great part in the in the show. And you know, we're just—it's been a beautiful thing. Like, it's honestly, it's a majority Latinx cast. It's a very oh, Daphne Rubin Vega plays the Alola, um, which is fun, so fun. She's so amazing. I mean, it—we had this beautiful scene that isn't in the book but that we shot for the pilot and it was like Aubrey and Jessica and Melissa and Daphne and um and then these two wonderful extras that you know came in for the day and I was in the room because we were running like little lines and things and we all afterwards like started crying like we were out in the street and on a street in Sunset Park doing little shots because mm -hmm. nobody had been other than, well, Jessica was like, I've been in spaces with other, this many other Latinas, but not only when I was playing a prisoner on Orange is the New Black. And no one else had really, like, it was such a rarity as actresses that they got, and that, and that there was such diversity of what was, of the of beauty that was being shown in the space, in the room. And so um, it was very emotional. And I, and the idea, you know, and it's a lot like the book, I really, I wrote it without, explanation that you know Tony Morrison talks about getting the white man off your shoulder like and you know who's the, not writing for the white gaze and I did not write for the white gaze at all and I didn't write the show for that gaze either and I think there's a lot you know the challenge when you try to stay that way is like there's like you know you have these issues where it's like people are like well I don't understand and why are they speaking so much Spanish <laughs> mm, <laughs> like you yeah. know and I think yeah. you have to so you know like there's always a little bit of that but then um but then, you know, I think that the authenticity people, people also then are like, oh, I'm in this world and I really am I'm loving it here. And so um, it was very important to me to paint South Brooklyn and New York as, as they are. And, um, and it's been, it's been pretty beautiful. So I'm very proud of the pilot. I'm, you know, we're very, Alfonso Gomez de Hon, um, who directed me and Earl on the Dying Girl and that a lot of people probably know from American Horror Story. He, um, he directed the pilot and produced co-executive producer with me and I wrote the pilot and it was just a, an amazing experience and working with this cast was so beautiful so I'm hoping that we just get to keep going and going and um and I think it will be a beautiful thing for people to see oh and it was so fun I mean like it's like I'm sure in Chicago you have your like weird local celebrities but we had like Ebro in the morning has like a part oh, and yeah like, nice uh, yeah <laughs> yeah great. there's a whole big thing with Ebro and all the everybody from Ebro in the morning and Errol Lewis who's like our like local Walter Cronkite is like mm. in it and like we just it was a lot of fun to your um, point about about people about um you know what does a Puerto Rican look like yeah. like there's this awesome scene and the way that we cut it this I don't even know that I'm supposed to talk about but I'm going to say it anyway but there's this great scene where Reggie King comes on to Hot 97 and Prieto is on, he's like a guest. And he starts talking about Puerto Rico and, you know, Rosenberg says, 
I forget you're Puerto Rican. And Reggie King goes, what's that supposed to mean? No, he's like, what's that supposed to mean? And then we immediately hard cut to Aubrey because as soon as the casting announcement was done, people were like, shouldn't they have cast a Puerto Rican in that part? And and like her fans are like so rabid and they're like, fucking Puerto Rican, shut up. Like, but it's like this idea of like, he doesn't see Puerto Rican to be full. She doesn't yeah. see Puerto Rican. Like, what is it? What is it? Like, what is it supposed to look like? And yeah. it was just this awesome moment that me and the editor and Alfonso had where we were like, that's really good. Like, that was just mm. really, like, that said the whole story in that one cut, you know, like, and it was just so great. I think that's a perfect segue to my next question. And you definitely touched on this as well in throughout yeah. our conversation. But Jasmine Camacho Quinn brings Puerto Rico our second ever gold medal. And she did not have to represent Puerto Rico. She could have easily represented the United States and brought a gold medal to the U.S. Now, after she won, I saw a lot of chatter of people questioning her Boricua card. She doesn't speak Spanish. She wasn't born on the island. Um, Of course, there's that undertone of racism because she's Afro Boricua. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't, quote unquote, look Puerto Rican. So um, based off of your experiences, Xochitl, you know, what does being Puerto Rican mean to you? That's a great, beautiful way to frame that question. Actually, I love that. Um, I think growing up, I didn't necessarily feel Puerto Rican enough, you know, like, and I think some of it was this, like, I felt like, I felt like a bad Puerto Rican. Like, I felt like my Spanish wasn't great. I I felt like I I can't seem to allow myself to be led on the dance floor, which is a flaw of mine. But like, I, I, I although I do have great rhythm, um, I, I just felt, I don't know, I felt like I wasn't checking enough of the boxes and it wasn't that I ever didn't claim it as an identity. I just felt like I was like, I was like, you know, and I'm not very good at it. Like, <laughs> like and, and, and so I think I started out being like, but what I am really good at is writing and I'm very proud of this. And, and so I want to write about this aspect of my, my identity and I want to write about this culture that I love so much. And so now in the process of writing it, some of this change because what I see, I see the things that I am the most proud of of myself, which is like strength and an ability to, and love and this ability, this care that I have for other people other than myself, um, this feeling of being in a community. And I very much see that as my, my Puerto Ricanness. Like I feel that that is, and my ability to, when I talk about resilience, like it's not just to keep going, it's to keep going and also celebrate life. Like it's like to knock off, like dust off and be like, I'm still going to celebrate life. And I don't think that I realized that that was part of my inheritance and what I feel it is it is about. And I think to not just take things, I actually think like the sense of like, no, no, no. And like, and like, that's not going to be okay. And this ability to to stand up for myself. All of these things that I think are my personal attributes, I actually feel are my cultural attributes. And I am so, so for me, this idea of being a joyful but resilient person, it's not that I haven't had very difficult periods of life. It's that I don't feel defined by my, I like, I, I feel for me being, being Puerto Rican is being defined by your strengths and not by your trials. And that feels very valid to me and I felt so much more so I'm like gonna get emotional like um when I got to the end of the book like and I was just like this is literally who I am like the 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 the, the perseverance of at the book ends on the island and I won't give anything away but um 
you know, I, <laughs> I talked to one editor who was from the island who moved here and lived in Sunset Park. Who was like, she's like, I'm not going to win this auction, but I needed to talk to you. And she's like, when I got to the end, I, and she started singing Deciosa to me on the phone mm. and we were both like crying. And I just think it's part, it, to me, it is about being strong and about finding joy in life, no matter how many things are thrown at you that tell you otherwise. Um, and that for me is, is what it means. Oh, well said. Um, and what a, what a blessing it is to be able to have the platform you have to write, to write a novel like this that people are enjoying, um, and to infuse your own, your, your own identity, your own experiences into a character. I mean, that, that's a big deal. Thank you. Thank you. And I also want to say like, you know, Hmm. Because of all the other things that we talked about and gentrification mm-hmm. and classism and all these other things. And this is one of the questions you had emailed about. And I do just want to touch on it very quickly. Please. Because of all those things, I didn't think, and I think unfortunately too many people in our community don't, I didn't see on the table being a writer or an artist. Mm-hmm. I was like, I need to survive. Like I need, I have this debt from college. I have to find a job, I need insurance, like nobody in my family can help me. Like I, I, you know, it's like you're, you're independent and you're thrown out there. And I want to just say that it took me almost a full generation. Like, it's like as though I was, had raised my own self into like having some financial independence and stability into having social capital, like my own connections and networks to be able to have the courage to say like, I can be an artist now and take this leap and, 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 and do that. And so that is not to say like, it should take everybody 20 years. It's just, I hope this is on the radar of every young person that's like considering what they might want to go out and do. But like the idea is also to say that it's also never too late to then make that adjustment. And, um, and that if you have something to say, to, to find the route to get to say it. And I, I, I want to, we need more storytellers. We need more artists. We need more screenwriters. We we need more directors. We need more, and we need to help one another to pull each other up. But that is what we're really good at, you know. Like as a community, we are so good at be. When you look at what happened with Maria, like everybody was there for each other. You know what I mean? Like it was like that. It wasn't FEMA. Yeah. <laughs> it was no, like it was not. Yeah, it was not FEMA. It was like it was, and it, it was to me that was like the the spirit that we have. So we need to just. Um, I say this to say, I came to this career later in life. I am humbled and overwhelmed by the response that people have had to this book. Um, Vogue just put it on its most anticipated list. Parade Magazine had it on its most anticipated list. I think you mentioned time, but like that, this is so powerful to me, but it is only through that lived experience that I had that um, I was able to get here. And so sometimes our roads are just a little longer and that's okay. Oh, I love that. And I, and I was going to ask you what, like, what was your best, what's the best piece of advice you've been given, but you just gave a really great piece of advice. So I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's perfect. I mean, if you have something, write it. I mean, that's a big reason why we, I started this podcast. I mean, there, yep. I didn't see enough of our stories being highlighted in traditional media. So I said, well, let's create a space where we get a different Boricua in the guest chair and we just 
talk about whatever. Yeah, I mean, it, I it doesn't it. even have to directly be about Puerto Rican culture. Just the fact that they're Puerto Rican shows the dynamic nature of, of our right. people. So let's create that space. And I think you That's created right. some good space with Olga Dye's Dreaming. Um, I really do. Um, and like I said at the beginning of our conversation, I haven't finished it. I'm keeping myself honest That's here, okay. I can't wait. I, I can't wait for you to finish it. Nah, I'm you digging have it. To, you have to message me when you're done. I yeah, will. So, I will. Yeah. I will. Oh, well. If there's any twists okay. and turns, I'm going to be like, so chill. How could you? <laughs> no. Um, really appreciate you giving us the time. Um, I do want you to give our, our listeners ways that they can learn more about the book, pick up the book, stay up to date yes. with you, you know, give us all the things. How can yes, people stay yes. up with you, the book, uh, after they listen to this episode? Um, you can find me on social media at Sochil the G, and it's X-O-C-H-I-T-L the G. Um, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter. And then my website, SochilGonzalez.com, actually has links to a couple of excerpts and some other writing that I've done. But I also have a weekly column for The Atlantic um, for subscribers called Brooklyn Everywhere, where I mainly talk about gentrification. Actually, this week I wrote about Jeremy Strong, which is oh, <laughs> so anyway. Um, I think that, that out. It, 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 yeah, it varies yeah. from talking about my bra lady to Jeremy Strong, so it's really a, <laughs> a broad spectrum. But um, but yeah, so I think uh, you can kind of get a taste of of things everywhere, and if you know if you haven't ordered a copy of Olga from your local indie now's a great time and hopefully I'll be coming up to Chicago once things kind of calm down a little bit I will have a cafe con leche and a vena de coco from Nelly's local restaurant <laughs> yeah like, I'm waiting for you when that day comes beautiful thank you so much Sochil Gonzalez author executive producer fair to say yeah. right yes, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and of course uh like we said author of Olga Dies Dreaming. It's coming out January 4th. By the time you listen to this, it will be available in your bookstore, your local bookstore. So go check it out, pick it up. I think you'll like what you read. So chill, thank you again for being on the Paseo Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, as I mentioned in the last episode, we're gonna switch up the Puerto Rican news segments of these episodes. Um, I invited my lovely wife, best woman in the world, who I know. Um, well, even if I didn't, oh, God. Because you have to say that. It's it's okay. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> no, it's, I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. But Kim Ortiz is here, special guest, second time on the podcast. If you want to listen to the first time she was on the podcast, check out our Super Bowl halftime show breakdown. Broke down uh, J-Lo and Shakira's performance. And Bad um, Bunny. And Bad Bunny. And J Balvin, I think, goes there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, full disclosure, Kim and I are recording this in our dining room. First time homeowners, which is a blessing. First time dog owners, which is a blessing. But best place to set up is our dining room. So hopefully it's easy on the ears. You might hear our pups in the background. But, sounds you know. Sounds of baby girl. The sounds of baby girl. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. Also, we're just going to kind of wing this. We don't, we don't really have a structure. But we have a, a few news stories that we were just going to. Uh, kind of give you a high level view over. Um, if anything, hopefully these news stories at the very least are put on your radar and encourage you to read more about them. All right. So Kim, mm -hmm. you ready? Mm -hmm. Got you. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's get into it then. All right. Let's start out with the first story. So Bloomberg Quick Take did a video on this. Um, a few other outlets have reported this. Uh, but basically drawing attention to tax breaks being given to crypto millionaires um, in Puerto Rico. 
Uh, and this is all based a part of uh, Puerto Rico's tax law. It's known as Act 60, uh, which... Now known as Act 60, now, right? Correct, yeah. Now... Mm-hmm. That was confusing to me that it's like these two acts, what was it, 22 and 47, got combined into Act 60? Yeah, close. So Act 22 and Act 20. 20 um, okay. So Act 20 is for businesses. Act 22 is for individuals. Was it combined to get it through like a legislative push easier or why was it combined? That's a good question. I don't have a, a concrete answer for that. Um, but what I do know is when we interviewed an activist um, a few months ago, her name's Nicole Alvarez. Um, I can't remember which episode of the podcast it was, but she was she framed it as it being a way to since Act Twenty Two, Act Twenty had become had become were becoming more of the public vernacular. Act 60 was a way to basically put lipstick on a pig. Mm, they were rebranding. A rebrand, exactly. Okay. A reband, a rebrand, a reboot, a remake. Yeah. yeah. And for context, uh, Act 20 was for businesses. It lowered the corporate tax rate. Well, actually, do you want to guess, Kim? So it lo- lowers the corporate tax rate uh, from 21% in the U.S. to... Zero. <laughs> Ooh, close. Four <laughs> percent in Puerto oh, Rico. Wow, they're they're really getting that money. Right, getting yeah. money. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, they they. I think and I think the uh, like well, some of the qualifications were like you need to hire at least one Puerto Rican uh, uh-huh. for your for your business, which is yeah. like okay, cool. You can have a business come here. Uh, th- hire thousands of people, but only but they hire could one be person. your garbage person, right? They could purposefully make that the lowest paid person in that company, aka the person who is their maintenance person who they're not paying a living wage to. So it's not like they're even making an effort to financially benefit or bring up people on the island. I'm sure that they would find ways to make sure that. They're not investing in the island in a substantial way. Yeah, no, I, I think that's spot on. So, uh, so yeah, I think there's like tiers to it. So you could have, I, I think, like the more you make, the less you're paying. But also, there's like a requirement where you can you have to like donate to community organizations, um, like ten grand. But those community organizations, that the minimum, something like that. Uh, but those, but the the tricky part here is, and this this is what Nicole mentioned in our la- that last episode. You set can up have your own, a, set up your own nonprofit. Exactly, it's so easy. A company, uh, literally, a politician could set up their own company and have that mm-hmm. that money coming in. So, uh, you know, you create a space for for corruption. Now, for individuals, here's another part of the pop quiz. So, Act Twenty Two, which is designated for individuals, the capital gains tax. It's all about the capital gains tax with Act Tw- Act Twenty Two. So in the U.S., it's 37%. You know what it is under Act 22 in Puerto Rico? I thought, okay, this I think is zero. Damn right. Yes, because, yeah, huh? Because mm-hmm. this is why, and I feel like it's a slippery slope because everyone's talking about cryptocurrency people and this is why they, there's such an incentive to go. But how is this not also going to leak then to regular um investors who can go down there, hedge fund managers, people who do that for a living or in the you know financial sector, what's to stop them from also going down there? Like, I'm not understanding why people are saying, oh, this is all cryptocurrency people, because isn't this also for anybody in that industry who wants to come over here and have the 0% tax on their capital gains, which is what they do for a living? 
Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it shouldn't be geared towards those people. I mean, we're talking not only cryptocurrency, we're talking real estate, we're talking stockbrokers, we're talking, yeah. we're, that, that all falls into it. I think the reason why cryptocurrency tends to get the most ire from people that are against something like Act 60 is that you have um, uh, prominent names in the cryptocurrency space that have actively lobbied and advocated for uh, Puerto Rico being a crypto utopia. Yeah, so they've made themselves the bad guy here. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it's just them. It's just that they're the ones that are like loud about gentrifying the islands. Yes, exactly. And there's one particular Bitcoin billionaire named Brock Pierce who you have examples of him recently buying a 150 room oceanfront hotel in Vieques. Mm -hmm. um, the, the old W hotel right. or resort. You, but then you also have, to your point, like you also have like people in real estate that will buy a property that has an oceanfront view and say, man, you guys, this is worth way more than what you guys are paying in rent even though what people are paying in rent there is more than what they're paying in other parts of that particular municipality or town. So you'll have, um, you know, viejitos, families that think they're going to live in an apartment in Puerto Rico for the rest of their lives, all of a sudden being told, no, I'm evicting you all and I'm going to get all new tenants in here and I'm going to quadruple this price because I'm trying to make a profit. So your reality be damned. The cost of living uh, uh, in Puerto Rico be damned because we're really going to be trying to get as many wealthy people, affluent people as possible here. Median income in Puerto Rico is between 20 and 30,000. So doing the math here, a lot of these real estate agents, these crypto millionaires and billionaires, it really all comes down to them trying to buy up as much property as possible because they can, because it's affordable, because they get the tax breaks. Um, and henceforth, as a result, they're kicking out working class Boricuas. Okay, Mr. Henceforth. Henceforth. Um, I, I think you bring up um, a good point. I, I do feel like a lot of those properties are not going to be, you're saying, rented for higher amounts. I don't even think it'll be that. I think it'll be they're going to turn them into, what do they call those things? Timeshares, luxury rentals, you know, places you can rent on VRBO and Airbnb. And it, like, you, like you were saying earlier, it's not even going to be for Puerto Ricans. It's going to be from people from the U.S. who want to be in a place that's a bit more foreign. And they would prefer to go to Puerto Rico because it feels like a vacation that's affordable to them. And so it's not even going to be replaced with other Puerto Ricans that might have a higher income. It's just not going to be Puerto Ricans at all. Yeah. Like, ex like, excuse me? Hands down. Well, and there have been people that protest. They'll protest at the governor's mansion. You know, they'll go to San Juan and protest. But has this law changed? Has there been any uh, particular indication that there's movement on altering this law or completely removing it? We have not seen any type of signal that that's going to happen. So on that happy note, <laughs> um, sorry, I started with some like heavier news. Let's move into something a bit uh, lighter. Osuna, <laughs> reggaetonero <laughs> uh, from Puerto Rico. Uh, he dropped a single with Cristina Aguilera, um, who I don't know if a lot of people realize Cristina Aguilera is Latina, even though the last name is 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 Latina, but um, you heard a bit of the song. What'd you think of it? Yeah, I clicked on the link you sent me and uh, I liked it. Right? I, I mean, I only got a snippet, but I, I gotta say it did have a beat and um, 
I do plan on watching the full video later. <laughs> um, yeah, I was into it, and I'm not even like a huge fan of either of them, but it was good. Yeah, I felt the same, and I I'll be honest. When I clicked the link, when I heard about it, I was and I clicked the link. I I kind of did not want to like it. Yeah, I was a little like, oh, I'm not feeling Osuna. Yeah. But no, the song was good. Yeah. And he looked different. Like he's been, he, I don't know, did a style diff- change or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm going to watch it later. I think so too. We'll probably watch it right after we record this. Probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when Christina Aguilera first came out? And, yes. Uh, of course, Jeannie in a Bottle. Jeannie Bottle Days. Yes. And then she dropped the same album, but all fully in Spanish. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've definitely, yeah. in, she, she can sing in Spanish. Yeah. I, it definitely feels like this is a bit of a callback to those days, which I think is pretty cool. Because I don't know that she's done stuff in the Spanish world, in the Latino world. I couldn't tell you. In recent memory, at least I, her past few albums. Know. So, pretty cool. Um, I also just love the idea of American artists seeking out, like, Latinx, Latino, Latina artists to be on their songs instead of vice versa. I think that's been a really cool juxtaposition in the music industry over well, the past few years. I think they know that's where the money is. Yeah. I mean, you see people you would never True. guess, you know, collaborating with big Latino artists because the market is so big. I don't I mean, let's not give them all the credit. Like right. there's money there to be made and there's a huge market in Latin America that they can expand to if they collaborate with certain people. So you see a lot of people, Nicki Minaj with Carol G. Um, <laughs> I really like that song. <laughs> Sean Mendez and Camilo. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what they do. I think that their managers <laughs> know what they're doing and I think they know what they're doing. Yeah. I hope it's about just making good music, but there's also that person on the other oh side God. of my shoulder that's like, well, it's also about money, you know? There was another news story that came out, and this was actually from the New York Times. A federal judge approved a deal to resolve Puerto Rico's bankruptcy, mm-hmm. um, and the plan restructures $33 billion in debt uh, nearly five years after Puerto Rico declared that bankruptcy. Yeah, I need restructures to be defined here. Yeah, I, I mean, essentially, and again, this is a very like high-level high, high view from what I understand it and from past reporters we've had on the show, kind of breaking down the the original proposal. Um, Essentially, uh, the debt adjustment plan or debt restructuring plan is intended to revitalize the colony's economy and reduce its debt to vulture funds. Um, And the way they're doing that is by reducing other services, or at least that's that's where a lot of the animosity towards this plan comes from, is the fact that in order to get to this point, the proposal was that uh, the Puerto Rican government would be making cuts to social services, to education, mm-hmm. to well, pensions. that's always where the money comes from. I mean, why would you expect for it just to be forgiven or for there to be an independent audit on the debt because you, when you could just take it from the pensions because they don't deserve it anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't understand that. Why is it that working class families have to always suffer for the faults of those in power? And we and we can't and it's like it's like that's always the answer. Even like what we see here in Chicago, it's like oh we have we have uh, budget woes. Let's not increase taxes on the people that can afford it. Let's do regressive taxes. Let's do some regressive taxes. The added layer to this is that yes, is it an eighty percent cut of the debt? 
Yes. Is that a good thing? Yes, gen in general. But where is it coming from? Exactly. And who benefits from that? So you look at the Puerto Rico government, you look at the U.S. imposed fiscal control board or La Junta, you know, they celebrate this decision because at the end of the day, they're getting taken care of. This The people who don't deserve this treatment are the ones that have to suffer the consequences of governments that think that the people at the bottom are getting too much. There's different brackets to how this stuff is implemented. A lot of Puerto Ricans have concerns that this new plan, even though it does cut 80% of the debt, the concern is that there, this is just gonna lead to further austerity me measures, further cuts to social services, education, University of Puerto Rico closing campuses. I mean, this is stuff we're already seeing now, privatizations of utilities. We've seen that with Luma Energy taking over the electrical grid. Um, and the, I'd probably say the worst part about this is all of this work, all of this effort, all of this money, all of this energy is being dedicated to a debt that has never been audited. So we don't even know the legitimacy of its existence. Like it, it just doesn't, we have no idea what backroom deals took place. We don't know, um, you know, who, who truly benefits from how these, he, how these, uh, how this debt was taken out. Um, it's never been audited. And imagine like you, uh, someone managing books that doesn't audit their, their finances, a company that wouldn't audit their finances to see, you know, how the heck they got in this situation. There's been so much resistance from the powers that be in political office against auditing the debt. Um, so we're basically setting up Puerto Rican residents, uh, Puerto Rico as a whole, uh, to really not be set up for success because we're basing this off again, just a, a lump sum of money that we have no idea how it accumulated. And when you can say, oh, it's, you know, the Puerto Rican people's fault or the Puerto Rican government's fault. Well, if a handful of politicians decided, you know what, we're going to take out this debt and we're going to funnel that debt into other streams of revenue for ourselves. How is that ethical? Why should why should a family in San Lorenzo have to pay because someone was involved in a get rich quick scheme? So last story you want to go over uh, really has to do with a statue of the Spanish colonizer Juan Ponce de Leon. Um, the, the statue was toppled in San Juan. Um, it was destroyed on the same day that the king of Spain uh, was scheduled to visit Puerto Rico. Um, I believe it's King Philip or King Felipe, Felipe. The, uh, mm -hmm. the sixth. Yep. Um, so, you know, he, the, the visit went as planned. You know, he met with the governor. Um, you know, he met with uh, um, uh, Mayor of San Juan, Miguel Romero. They're both uh, part of the pro-statehood party. So uh, that plan, you know, kind of went off, uh, kind of went off without a hitch. But there was a big, uh, a big cahoot over uh, the statue being toppled. So uh, AP, the AP Associated Press, has a, a rundown of, of what happened. Um, but uh, I gotta say, I mean, I'm not really that angry about it. No, no. And I think the mayor came out and said, "Ah, now we're gonna have to use the money we were gonna use to fill potholes to fix this statue." <laughs> I, and I saw that and I was like, really? That's, oh my God. I would much rather, I don't care what the statue is. You better fix that freaking pothole, man. That matters more to me in my everyday life than a statue of anybody, personally. Regardless if 
it's a Spanish colonizer or not. How are you going to like take money from public services for a monument that people just walk by and probably don't give a second thought to or brings a lot of pain based off of how uh, Spanish colonizers treated the indigenous populations when they landed in this part of the world? And I should add, there was a, at first, nobody knew who did it. The, the, the resp responsibility wasn't taken for those actions, but a group did um, take responsibility. Um, I'm trying to see what their the name of the group was. I'm trying to see. I love the comment here where it's like the mayor of San Juan, Miguel Romero. <laughs> He's like, these are not the same Spaniards from 500 years ago, you guys. <laughs> Don't take it out on them. Right. Like, uh, it's almost like the argument of, well, slavery ended so many years ago. You know, I'm not. Just forget about it. Right. Just forget about it. It's in the past. It just totally ignores the ripple effects of. Uh, I, feel, I feel like they had to have known that this guy was going to be exploded at some point. Blown yeah. up. Like, it just. You know, there there have been protests there before. This is not the first time that people have expressed their their anger towards this statue even existing. Right. Well, and chose to destroy it at a great time. <laughs> yeah, their their timing was pretty on point. So obviously, it was planned. Um, the group is called uh, Fuerzas Armadas Libertad. Uh, Libertarias de Borincan. People can look up their statement, but basically not really the biggest fans of the Spanish. Yeah, they uh, were like, we did it. Exactly. Not fans of gringos, but you know what? Or yeah. Act 60. Or Act 60. And, and what that's leading to, um, in the to leading to in the terms of ripping apart the island. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, did they send the message that they wanted? Yes. Um, but that statue still got put up. It got put back up. The mayor had police, heavy police presence around. So how did it get put back up? It was in pieces. But there was post. There was a look. Um, his bottom half was separated from his top half. You're right. You're yeah. saying they just like clicked him back in place like a Lego. Hey, I'm assuming that's exactly what they did. There's some type of whatever the equivalent of wood glue is for whatever that statue's made out of. Um, looks like they put it back together. I'm uh, not surprised, you know, these leaders, they're really big on superficial things. I know I can't curse, um, but they're really big on superficial things. They want to make sure that their city looks good and that they're inviting to these people who are here to celebrate 500 years of colonial history. So, yeah, I'm sure that was a priority to him, yeah. unfortunately. Okay, I know I said that was the last story, but there was one more I forgot to mention. Um, okay. Bad Bunny has a sold-out tour. I mean, he's here like three or four days, the Allstate Arena in Chicago, which is impressive because when we saw him, it was just the one show at Allstate. Yeah, so awesome. the demand is off the hook for this guy. I mean, number one string person in the so world So much so that he's doing another one, huh? Announced another second tour in the midst of a current tour. That's crazy. Um, but the, the difference is, uh, for people that aren't familiar with Allstate Arena here in Illinois or in the Chicagoland area... It's a lot smaller than the United Center. Um, it's one of oh, the smaller arenas. I thought it was going to be at Soldier Field. So that's it. So this second tour is a stadium tour. So he's going to be like playing 60,000, 50,000 plus venues as opposed to the Allstate, which I think is in the I have no idea. 10,000 range, I think. Wow. I, I don't know. Was that that much of a difference? That's yeah. 
explains why I like the Allstate Arena so much, but um, I didn't realize. No, it was 18,000. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was like. Okay, I Googled it. It's 18,500. That's the capacity. Okay. That, it's still yeah. a very, I think it's a great place acoustic wise and just size wise to go to a concert. Like, you know, you have a good seat wherever you are. Whereas I would never go to a concert at Soldier Field. It just seems like a waste of money. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you have a point there. I mean, 18 versus 61,000. You think I have a point there? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe the and, and also there's no ceiling, unlike the Allstate. Right. All yeah, yeah, yeah. Acoustics might be horrible. I mean, maybe. I've never seen. And you'll seen... definitely have to bring your binoculars. <sighs> yeah, true. I remember that time uh, we tried to see Beyonce and Jay Z, and it was like uh, crazy expensive for like nosebleed seats. If yeah. you're not doing like 100 level or on the field, I don't know. You're gonna I don't have know to what call you're experiencing. Ray. But uh, 61,500 is, is the capacity for Soldier Field. So kudos to Bad Bunny for yes. having as high as a demand yes. that he can do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that man has single-handedly brought to prominence the Puerto Rican... Uh, grocery store you know, bagger to Soldier Field. I mean, it's impressive. Puerto Rican accent, put that on the map in a big way to the point where it's popular for people. You know, it's... it's pretty cool um so he's doing big things so i mean i, I i'm kind of interested to go see this but mm -hmm. i think more importantly it's just nice to see a boricua doing big things um and i'm just really excited for him so if we are able to get tickets or if anybody's a fan of the podcast and wants to give us some comp tickets <laughs> just okay. let us know we'll go with you <laughs> we'll meet and greet <laughs> right um so yeah shout out to bad bunny doing big things all right, Kim, thank you so much for, for breaking down Puerto Rico news with me. Can't wait to keep doing this with you. So uh, we'll connect again in a couple of weeks and go down the late or go through, I should say, uh, the latest Puerto Rico news of the day. All right, everybody, that is the end of the Paseo podcast. I hope you like that segment. Um, there are a few other things I wanted to share with you all before we go for the day. So this little bit of listener feedback comes from John Kobo. Uh, John, hopefully I'm pronouncing your name right. If not, I'm so sorry. But uh, John actually emailed into the show and said, uh, and this is quote unquote, uh, just wanted to say that this is by far one of the best podcasts for Puerto Ricans that I have listened to. I am totally addicted. Your podcast is so informative. Any Puerto Rican living in, in the diaspora should ed educate themselves on the issues affecting Puerto Ricans and start with your podcast. So, uh, John, appreciate the kind words. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being addicted. Um, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time or you, if you've been a longtime listener, you are always welcome to send some some positive feedback our way. If you have a story idea, you know, we want to hear that from you. Um, and if you give us some some good listener feedback, we might or bad listener feedback, we might just uh, end up reading that on the show. Other ways that you can support the show, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, at Paseo Podcast. Like and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. We made it over over the 100 uh, subscriber mark. So, you know, we could put our trailer on there, change our URL, do a bunch of other fun, fun stuff on the account. Um, I'm happy to say that uh, we launched our Instagram account too. So we are officially uh, knocking on the door of 300 followers and we just started a couple weeks ago. So that's really cool to see. Uh, so if you want to see us talk about episodes, if you want to see us put together some really good content on, um, you know, other Puerto Rico topics, definitely check out our Instagram page. And again, you can find us on all that, um, on all those platforms by searching at Paseo Podcast. 
On our next episode, we're going to welcome Nina Vasquez. She is a historian. She has her master's in Puerto Rican, Caribbean, and Latin American studies. We're going to talk about the topic of the Black Code, which is probably, if you're listening to that for the first time, don't know what the heck the Black Code is, discriminatory policy against black populations in Puerto Rico. Spoiler alert, meant to treat them as less than than their white counterparts. So we're going to delve into Puerto Rico history and learn a bit about that. So stay tuned. Um, as always, if you want to pitch a story, send us some feedback, or you just want to pitch yourself to be on the show as one of our guests, reach out to us, podcast at gmail.com. You can also uh, submit um, uh, a pitch or you know reach out to us through our website, baselmedia.org. See you in two weeks. Cuídate.